0: Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippin, along with Lucia Holsether, your host for this podcast. Our guest today, anti-racist educator and writing teacher Felicia Rose Chavez, has written a book I wish every teacher would read the anti-racist writing workshop, how to decolonize the creative classroom. Through memoir and incisive critique, Chavez reveals the burden of the traditional canon and educational system on students, especially students of marginalized groups. Chavez also explores ways to design a more inclusive, democratic and decolonized writing workshop and classroom community. For any teachers committed to deconstructing traditional white supremacist patriarchal models of power and voice in the classroom, this book is foundational. For the traditionalist holding fast to a decaying hierarchical system, this book is necessary. <clears throat> Chavez is the Bronfman creativity and innovation scholar in residence at Colorado College, teaching courses in creative nonfiction, the Inspiration Lab, what a great name, Digital Storytelling and The Podcast, where students develop an audio essay around their writing and voice. Chavez has served as program director at Young Chicago Authors, founded Girl Speak Literary Website, taught at the University of Iowa, where she received and survived and transformed her MFA in creative nonfiction writing the University of New Mexico, and now Colorado College, winning multiple teaching awards. Chavez is also co-editor of Breakbeat Points Volume 4 Latin Next from 2020, as well as a consultant and workshop facilitator. We are thrilled she agreed to speak with us today to challenge us and inspire us to work towards a decolonized future. So welcome, Felicia Rose Chavez to Nothing Never Happens.
1: Thank you, what a beautiful introduction. I appreciate that, thank you so much. Well,
2: we'll just dive right in. Um, So there's, there's a moment where, I think it was in a previous interview where you describe your book as, a memoir and how to decenter whiteness and decenter authority. And I think one of the most um, sort of gorgeous and thought provoking parts of this work is the way that you blend together storytelling and theory and practice and sort of pedagogical reflection so that the the lines between those genres blur and sort of create a whole new way of um, articulating and thinking through and living through the process that is um, writing and thinking and learning through writing. So I'm curious about what, you know, if you had to tell a story about what brought you to this work, um, what brought you to writing this particular book, um, how would you, how would you describe that?
1: Sure. I mean, I, you know, it's a, um, It's a true lived experience of educational trauma. And I think so many of us are carrying around these stories with us. Um, I like to say that they kind of splinter under your skin and you think, oh, it's just, you know, it was just a moment. It was just a little thing, let it go. But they stay embedded under your skin and they accumulate until um, you start to wonder where does my narrative start and where does that narrative stop of being a person of color in the United States of America. Um, So reflecting back on this educational experience came as a prompt from um, a experience uh, at an academic conference um, in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, It was a nonfiction now conference, and um, it was the first opportunity for me to speak about a class that I had created in graduate school at the University of Iowa, called Toward a New Canon. Um, And it was an opportunity for graduate students to study contemporary writers of color, which we weren't engaging with, um, you know, in any other courses um, as part of uh, our MFA program. So um, this was some, I don't know, six years later. um, And I returned uh, to meet up with the, the students who I had collaborated with to create this class um, in, a, in a panel format in Reykjavik. And I stand up to read my portion of the, the panel speech um, about my experience at Iowa, but also you know in my pedagogical kind of response now as a professor um, with the intention to like empower all of us in the room um, to not just sit in the paint, but to look forward and create our own spaces of learning. And I just cried and cried. Um, I couldn't even get through the beginning of the speech. It took real willpower to be able to calm myself as I'm looking out at people I went to school with and I'm looking out at professors who taught me and I'm saying this for like the first time kind of exposing my experience at Iowa. Um, and there was just such a beautiful, generous response in the in the audience from other, um, you know, former MFA students of color, as well as, um, you know, current white allies who didn't want to replicate harm. um, They all reached out to me afterward and I thought, this is it, like this is um, an opportunity. People are ready to hear about um, not just my experience, but an opening to a conversation with so many others about their experiences in these harmful, um, toxic academic environments. and so I, you know, I had this idea for this book and I sat down to, to work on it. I, I created this book proposal and, and came up with these great titles for chapters and then sat back and said, okay, now I have to write this. <laughs> I thought, oh gosh, it's so hard to articulate not only what you had gone through to lead you to that moment, but what it is exactly that you're doing in the classroom. Um, And I ask of readers throughout the book to reflect deeply on themselves um, in an effort to... um, to assess how our own pedagogical practices are reinforcing institutional racism, individual racism, even internalized racism, I had to enact that same process along with my readers. And so um, that's where the, the memoir elements of the book came in. I really wanted to reflect deeply on where I came from and what Um, teaching legacy I was putting forth, what I had experienced and what I was replicating and what I could where I could change and pivot and discover a new way. And so that was my um, kind of approach in terms of the memoir portions
0: of the book. Oh, thank you for that. Um, Now, you say in the book at at one point that, um, you know, MFA programs began around 1936. Are things there? What date would you put MFA programs today? And are they changing and getting less toxic, or are those like little, little pieces of programs at places that you can identify? Um, you know, what's happening in MFA programs today? Is it are you seeing a paradigm shift or things um, pulling back and and uh, retrenching?
3: Well, the traditional writing workshop model. Um, Began at Iowa in 1936. That was something that launched there. Um, and it has since been replicated nationwide, I would say worldwide. Um, it's kind of the go to model. Um, it is something that um, I would say large scale MFA programs are replicating today. Um, so we're talking 80 years later and we're still kind of holding close to the
1: same traditional model. Uh, I think that there are. Many exciting individuals out there who are within their own classrooms attempting a different approach. But by and large, I don't believe that their approach is the program's approach. To a creative writing pedagogy. Um, I think those of us who are doing the work are doing it kind of siloed in our own classrooms. Um, I do workshop facilitations across the country and work with faculty um, of both undergraduate and graduate students, high school teachers. I even meet with the students about self advocacy within the classroom. Um, and the narrative that I hear again and again is devastating. You know, it's my story over and over again echoed back to me. And that is. A lot of psychic weight to carry. First of all, <laughs> there's a lot of nights where I'm up, kind of feel just feeling the intensity of of that um, cry for help. Um, it, at the same time, um, the fact that you know these faculty have invited and these programs have invited me into their space and are engaging with these ideas, right? Whether it be my book, um, David Mira's book, A Stranger's Journey, um, Matthew Salis's book, Craft in the Real World, right? These are all um, varied approaches to workshop models um, as, as, as though there's an uprising of, of uh, writers of color who are saying, you asked for the tools, here are the tools, now let's get going, there's not an excuse anymore, right? So the fact that those conversations are even happening gives me a bit of hope. Um, I just am so eager to see the, the change that, um, you know, I'm a little impatient.
2: One of the things that I notice um, at my own institution and at other institutions is that these, these events are happening. Like You, other writers, um, are invited to do workshops, and they're fantastic and transformative in the moment that they're there. And often the pools of money that fund these sorts of events are like one year initiatives, um, not faculty lines, not chairs, not um, revamps of um, of the pedagogical model. It's sort of like, oh, we could add this, we could add this perspective into the system that we haven't committed to transform. And so I'm wondering um, if you could comment on sort of how you see the lines between kind of um, inclusion that doesn't transform and inclusion that um, would be a kind of dismantling of the white supremacist and heteropatriarchal institutions that um, are so um, silencing and violent towards the voices, the stories, um, the experiences and the the language of so many students of color in the creative writing classroom. Yeah, I
3: I think violence is the right word. Right. It's a psychological, emotional, and sometimes even physical violence that students have to endure just to earn an education, which is devastating. Um, It takes every single one of us to assess, to admit to, and assess our individual implicit bias with full commitment. In order to deeply create a sense of change within a program, it's not enough to, you know, for our faculty of color to carry it on our backs. Um, and it's not enough for one or two white allies to support that work. Um, I think that, you know, this anti-racist pedagogy is it's, necessitates action. Um, so not only do we reflect on how we reinforce racism within our own classrooms, departments, programs, um, we need to reorient from you know centering ourselves as authority and centering whiteness as neutral and objective and universal. Um, so it's a, it's kind of like a program wide reconception in terms of an approach, uh, reorienting from speaking to listening to our students from. Um, product, right? What they create to a process, how they create and their relationship to writing and their identity as writers. And then from you know ourselves as authority to ourselves as ally. Um, It also necessitates a, a reconception of craft. Um, not as some, you know, pillar of like white Western hegemony, like this is it. <laughs> this is what we, we lay down at its feet, right? But instead we're co-creators in the meaning of craft um, and, and we can shape it to reflect our own knowledge sources. Um, so, so that we all own the terms. So it is um, it's a big ask Uh, But it's also exciting work. Um, I tell so many faculty who are quick to say that there's no resources to support this kind of work, that we're already um, funneling our resources to support a race-based writing program. Um, It's called White Supremacy. So when we um, focus those same exact resource pools um, to support the anti-racist writing workshop, what we're doing is um, taking action uh toward change um, as opposed to this stagnancy which just, Serves to support white supremacy. Um, I think people think when they're not actively being racist um, in terms of individual interactions, that they're not supporting racism as a system and an institution as a whole. Um, when instead, you know, these sorts of conversations are very enlightening for, for some folks to, to really understand what it necessitates to create real change.
0: Yes. Uh, could you follow up with that? Um, and uh, you use June Jordan's most wonderful book, uh, Poetry for the People, uh, which has been one of my favorites forever and um, could you could you tell us some about how you create a workshop that engages with culturally relevant teaching and tries to, Uh, deconstruct um, the white supremacist patriarchal canon and traditionalism that it's just so entrenched and such a given in so many programs.
3: Yeah, so June Jordan, right, when I first pitched this book, I said, it's the updated poetry for the people because I held that book so close to my heart. Um, and when I would go to my nonfiction classroom, I could like extrapolate the spirit of the book, but it wasn't necessarily a toolkit for me teaching fiction or nonfiction or playwriting, whatever role I was playing in that particular moment. Um, you know, it was, it was very focused on the poetry classroom. I thought, what can we do to expand that, right? Um, to, to, to pay homage to her legacy, um, to, through my own learning right and and to reveal what has since evolved um and so I am so so deeply honored to be able to to pay tribute
1: to that text um with my own words um I think that um this sort of anti-racist writing workshop um it's immediately centers our students, right? Um, Whereas we might otherwise see our students as um, receptacles for our expertise. We fill them with our knowledge. Instead, we are um, really honoring each and every one of our students as having um, their own individual writing legacies immediately when they enter our classrooms. Every single one of them is a writer. Um, whether or not they adopt that title for themselves. Um, we center their words and their work uh, as the text of study. Um, so there are our, our go-to authors um, throughout the workshop. Um, we engage them in that collective meaning-making, right? We invite them to contribute to the reading list. We allow our students to self-select the texts that best appeal to their own individual aesthetic preferences. Um, we aim to decenter whiteness um, by celebrating works by contemporary writers of color, by you know queer writers, working class writers, women writers, um, and and within all sorts of. Um, mediums. So I advocate for a digital database so that students can access an audio essay right next to a hip-hop album, right next to a a more traditional text, right? Um, And they can gravitate toward what best interests them. Um, We ask students to listen to themselves, um, to tune inward as well as outward, right? To to assess their relationship to writing and reading, um, but also to assess their own intuition and to trust it. Um, And this sort of deeply student-centered model, um, what I call a pedagogy of deep listening, right? Allows us um, to, to be with our students, to fully be present with them, to hear them and see them, to acknowledge what they're capable of and encourage their own vision for their own work. Um, Obviously that necessitates them moderating their own writing workshops and leading their own one-on-one conferences and dialogue with their teacher or professor. Um, There's just so much power in their hands to be who they fully are um, and to say that that's excellent in and of itself.
2: This is a question that um, came from a colleague of mine at Skidmore um, who has experience in leading writing workshops. Um, And of course, like in that sort of acknowledges that of course, everybody everybody comes in a writer. Everybody comes in shaped by their own storytelling traditions with this sort of deep contextual knowledges um, that we, that, that, that classrooms at their best help us share. And the, some of that contextual knowledge, some of um, this sort of aesthetic disciplines that the world has like introduced to us might be, um, might involve the vectors of oppression. There might be sort of like my emotional reactions come from somewhere. And so when something happens where, you know, you might like some imagining that like a student, imagining that um, a student has a desire to write from a position that is either harmful or problematic in some way to the classroom community. Sometimes it's hard, I think, for other students and even for teachers to kind of find ways into a critique of that if they are vesting it in their own experience. And so how do you interface with those moments sort of the the relationship between dismantling harm and speaking to students' individual experiences that um, have shaped us to have internalized oppressions, um, internalized sort of orientations towards the institution, harmful institutions that we have been often shaped by? The, the work that
1: we engage within my own classroom is an ongoing effort. So I think a lot of the times, teachers are concerned with, um, the the big reveal right workshop where students present work that we haven't seen um and how do we navigate the conversations that are going to arise as a result of of that reveal um i don't believe in um the kind of repressed private Writing experience that so many of us suffer through, right? That it's something that we it's it's the relationship between ourselves and our computer or ourselves and the page. Um, I believe in um being quite generous in our spirit of, of allying with one another in the classroom and having students present drafts in progress. Um, we start from the very beginning, the impetus of what it is that we want to write. We think theme before we think plot, um, and so we start asking questions. Um, this, this, The power of the question as impetus for the piece is really an exciting part of the workshop, and it's the hardest work. Um, and I think when all of us experience, you know, um, these questions that are at the center of our work, we're able to recognize the humanity of the piece uh, before we get into the details of, you know, the aesthetics and and the um, the um, the the more technical aspects of the work. Um, we know where it comes from. Uh, And I I think that's really important. Not only do we know one another, right, through check-in every day um, in which students talk about how they're doing, through connecting, many opportunities to connect and call each other by name, but we're able to hear the heart of the work first. Um, I think this allows us to off that initial emotional impulse to the thing that we're going to see later because we understand where it came from. Um, I haven't encountered many opportunities to and i get this question a lot like i get i think it's like a fear it's a psychological fear that a lot of teachers have because this is like the you know the kind of obsessive question of like what are you going to do what do you do how do you handle this and i i think it is maybe something that happens in other classrooms but in my own classroom um we've evolved to a point where where we don't engage with um such harmful material that folks have to protect themselves in response to it. Um, I I do think that there are obviously works that engage with kind of trigger material. Um, We make that well-known or very early on. Um, And sometimes students work separately outside of the classroom. Sometimes we, you know, students pair purposefully for this reason so that they can support one another in the projects that they're engaging with. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunities to navigate that early on, as opposed to waiting for the workshop reveal. Um, I also think that the better we know one another and understand our impulse to kind of work through the material that we're choosing to work through, um, then we, you know, it just humanizes the whole approach.
2: That makes so much sense. Sometimes I think about it that, that question that comes up at teaching workshops, you know, whether it's about creative writing or not as like playing whack-a-mole in one's head with potentially um, like harmful or oppressive or violent student comments as if like that's where the violence came from and it wasn't already in the room. Um, and I, I really appreciate this sort of, I think the language of reveal sort of parallels this that if, if the writing, if the, if the engagement with the writing is the moment of reveal, then you're going to be surprised. Like it's the mole that's popping up that you might have to control or manage, but building in a process where folks know each other, where folks have been trained to ask questions and orient in a different way to what the classroom is and where authority is vested. Um, I think it, it makes a ton of sense. So thank you for that. Yeah. I guess it's, so, it's, it's oh, no, Go it, ahead. It, it's just, it's, you know, I, I get
1: that, um, the book is an invitation, right, to adapt for everyone's own community. I don't assume to know where everyone's situated and who what you know who they're working with in their own classrooms. And so I want it to be an invitation for a dialogue. Take what works, you know. But I think that sometimes educators um, Pick that one thing. Oh, well, I like the way that you do that letter. So I'm going to do that, you know, artist statement. And that's the thing I'm going to take. And now I'm achieving an anti-racist writing workshop when in fact it is a cumulative experience. There's no anti-racist writing workshop at the end for a formal workshop if you're not engaging with the anti-racist work from the very beginning, which is deeply rooted in community building and truly seeing one another and hearing one another. Um, So yes, that's absolutely right.
2: Um, One of the things that um, your answer just now made me, made me think about, and this is coming from the other, I did my graduate work at, um, at Yale, and um, was, had a lot of creative writing students in my classes, um, even though I was not teaching in the the English program. And one of the the concerns that queer students and students of color would often bring up is that they felt pressure in their creative writing workshops to perform their queer trauma, their racial trauma. um, And that was the ticket to getting, so it was either be sort of chiseled into the norms and expectations of the white European male literary canon or if you want to divert from that, then um, there was a professor you say, you need to shed a drop of blood. Um, and I'm curious if you could speak to, I can imagine an answer to this, but speak to how sort of thinking about the workshop as process um, both n- allows students to sort of process where they are while also um, protecting folks who um, whose trauma is trafficked by white spectators as a commodity, often in the literary world and in our academic institutions.
1: Yeah, I think this results from this, you know, all too often invisible centralized whiteness within our writing programs. So not only is, is white writing the neutral objective and universal text that we go to, Right, it's the text that we ask students to mimic within their own writing in order to achieve "quote unquote" good writing, right? Um, but you know, predominantly white writing programs um, are staffed by you know white um, professors uh, and are attended to by white students, and so as one of the only people in the room within my own graduate, people of color in the room in my own graduate program, um, you figure out really quick what's safe to write. Um, And by safe, I mean, protecting our own kind of emotional dignity, Um, safe as in what makes white readers feel safest um, in terms of their reading experience. that often means not challenging their conception of characters of color, or just eliminating characters of color altogether because it causes too much confusion. Um, I was just looking and applying for um, the an NAA grant uh, in prose, and um, I was looking through past winners of creative nonfiction writing, and I, I thought, well, my writing, you know, I doesn't. Um, Adhere to the standards of these, you know, these white award winners. So maybe I should look at the the award winners of color, right? And I start flipping through these profiles, and I find, wow, this um, black female writer wrote about slavery. I pick another one. Oh, this black female writer wrote about slavery too. A third black writer wrote about slavery and won an NEA grant. That. Is not a surprise and is sad. It just, it's just, it just, sad isn't the word. (laughs) You know, all things despairing, right? I I felt angry. I felt confused. I thought, where am I going to fit in here? Why am I wasting my time? Because that's what it feels like. It feels like if I don't contort myself and my writing to fit into the narrative um, that will most be celebrated by a white readership then what's the point? Um, and, and so um, the more that we engage in this work, the more that we can exercise a sense of imaginative empathy, we can learn to see a different way, um, to, to acknowledge that there are, that there's like a rich, um, landscape for us to um, survey when it comes to a diversity of voices and approaches to the page in the classroom. Um, it just, it, it takes the work to, to get us there.
0: Yeah, I, I'm hearing kind of two fronts here. One, I, I get really kind of depressed at the landscape and the responses of, of way too many colleagues. Um, about academic freedom and the canon and why it's important for students to know all the you know, dead white European men, um, even in the 21st century. Um, but I'm hearing in your voice, and I, I heard this in the book, and this is very Paula Freire and, and Bell Hooks and others, um, a kind of pedagogy of grace and you've already talked about um, the kind of deep listening that is so important um, in teaching and, and doing these writing workshops. So, you know, that that's like a place of hope um, that there is on the one hand, this deep listening, but it gives rise to sort of aggressive activism. And that word activism is sometimes called the A word. Like, you know, you're, if you do it, your institution will put a scarlet A on your, outfit <laughs> and, um, you know, make you go out in public with that Scarlet A. So, um, I'm seeing these two things sort of, uh, in nice, uh, tandem, you know, that, that deep listening and that uh, aggressive activism. So could you tell a few stories, um, or a story about what that aggressive activism looks like that comes out of that deep listening and that deep listening gives rise to? I think there's so much talk
1: about wanting change. Now we have an opportunity to make immediate tangible change in the classroom And I think that the concern among so many faculty is, do I have permission to do this? And my response again and again is do not wait for permission because the longer you wait for permission, the more missed opportunities you have to change an entire generation of young people. Um, Also be that permission, you know, will ever come. Um, And so I, I advocate that the strategies that I lay out in the book in being specific and replicable and tangible are aggressive activism in that um, we reorient from being passive to being active. In, for example, right? Um, Something as small as allowing students to read their work aloud in workshop as opposed to giving it over silently and allowing others to experience the work in their own voices, in their own heads as they read to themselves, right? Students read in real time in the classroom, um, their work aloud. And as a result of that, and this is something that I hadn't even considered, but as a result of that, students are starting to write in their, you know, they, they speak multiple languages and they're they're writing from their home language, right? Um, and by home language, I mean, maybe not necessarily, you know, a, a, a different language entirely, but sometimes the words of home, the words that evoke the language of friendship and home. Um, that aren't the this, this sort of writing that you may hear um when when whiteness is the objective um they trust themselves that they can pronounce these words correctly um they have power over their own pages um, they can deliver in the way that they want it to be heard and experienced um that's immediate action that's instant change in terms of that literary landscape that we're talking, that we're talking about. Right. Um, And so we're inviting not only different voices on the page, we're inviting different readers to hold those pages and engage with that work, because I can't tell you how excited I get when I see my own language of home reflected on the page. And it's not a trauma narrative because that's hard to read in the evening right before bed, right? I can, I can engage those works just as much as everyone else. And I, you know, I celebrate those others, but yeah, sometimes it's great to have joy too on the page and, and to celebrate who I am and where I've come from through the experience of another person. So that's immediate, immediate action, immediate activism um, that, that we can accomplish tomorrow. If only uh, we, we took on the challenge um, and we're brave enough to risk a different way. There's so much hesitancy among teachers. um, when, when we center ourselves and say, oh, I tried that a long time ago and I didn't like that. Or, um, I don't know, I it just seems like you know switching everything. I, I don't know. Right. When we decenter ourselves, when we say we're not the point, our students are the point. So when we prioritize our students over our own comfort level, then we can see, okay, this is the most important thing to do. And so I will risk it and see how it goes. And if it doesn't go well the first time, Ask them for feedback for how to make it better. Don't just abandon it altogether. Make it a community effort so that the next time you try it collectively, you can hear, yeah, that was a bit better. Here, let's try this. Let's just keep tweaking it until we get someplace where there's um, comfort among everybody that this, this new approach is really exciting and different and we like it
2: makes me think about like pedagogy as a process of revision um, in conversation and collaboration. And that makes me wanna ask, um, so as we think about the the genre of teaching, the media of teaching and writing and how those, the sort of language we use for both can cross apply and describe, Sort of aesthetic experiences and learning experiences in new ways. I'm curious if you could um, tell tell us and our listeners a little bit more about your relationship to um, sort of the arts more broadly. Um, how do you how do you bring um, studio art, um, poetry, the di- different genres into your classroom um, and into your your own writing process um, to to kind of I Don't enhance isn't quite the word I want, but to, to open to open yourself, your students to different possibilities.
0: Yes, and it, as part of that, um Liz Lehrman's critical response process and you know dance and embodied learning as is also part of that.
1: Yeah, I think um I come to writing as a as a reader and as somebody who's deeply appreciative of. Of art of all kinds. Um, So I wasn't one of these folks who, you know, from like third grade on was like, I'm going to be a writer when I grow up. It was something that I just deeply appreciated. Um, And I found that um, my initial engagement with young people in writing was through tutoring. Um and I just saw how much they suffered. <laughs> I just saw how much these young people, whether it be elementary school students, middle school students, or high school students, really suffered through their relationship to the text that they were assigned and the writing prompts that they were, you know, that they had to respond to. Um, and that I took into consideration. The next kind of phase of my own education was through my involvement with young Chicago authors and the spoken word poetry scene. So, Louder Than a Bomb the Spoken Word Poetry Festival was like the big event each year that we would contribute to. And I saw yet a different approach to writing um, and and the ownership that those young people felt over their own real genre of poetry. It wasn't something that they necessarily were reading um, or honoring within, you know, their school's curriculum, but it was something separate from, but more of themselves. Um, So um, when I came to my own writing community at the University of Iowa, um, I immediately felt so alienated, and isolated, I I couldn't engage with memoir in the way that I sought out to initially, um, because I didn't want to endure the workshop discussion um, about the text about my own life. Um, And so I set out to learn as many different software programs and approaches as possible. I mean, that was my entire focus um, during those few years. Uh, So I started making graphic essays and I started um, doing audio essays, which at the time was at the very early kind of inception of what a podcast was. That wasn't something that was very popular. So um, unfortunately, my timing was off because no one wanted to publish my work. Nobody understood what multimedia writing was or hybrid writing. That well, Those weren't terms yet, um, but um, I found that in engaging those um, platforms or those mediums really helped me kind of broaden my knowledge of what writing was. Um, I would bring in and celebrate a spoken word poem alongside um, a, a graphic, a very early iteration of a graphic essay or a graphic novel um, alongside a more traditional text so that students can see the possibilities for their own writing. I wasn't expecting them just because they took a fiction writing workshop or a nonfiction workshop or a poetry workshop to write in one way and one tradition. Um, In fact, I would welcome all genres into the classroom because I think that each genre of writing informs the other. Um, And then adopting the Liz-Lerman critical response process as my own workshop methodology um, drew from this, you know, performance arts background um, in which students were, you know, truly collaborative. It was a, a community born effort to engage one another's work. And I thought we can accomplish that within a writing classroom. It doesn't have to be um, a hyper competitive, individualistic um, uh, tradition. It can be something much more beautiful and much more generous. Um, if only we allowed that, that space and time in the classroom to engage that.
0: Yeah, well, what do you see yourself growing into now as a teacher?
2: Hmm.
1: I mean, I, th- I think putting out this book is challenging me to exercise voice beyond what I already thought I had achieved. Um, it's scary business putting out a book like this I, uh, you know, having spent two years writing it and revising it, I thought, "Well, there we go. <laughs> I've done it, and now I'm ready to share it with the world." And in sharing it with the world, there's a lot of pushback. I mean, there's a lot of um, of those same splintering under the skin kind of comments that we initially started talking about, right? Those moments where I get an email or a social media message. That's really hurtful and damaging. Um, Defensiveness, rage, denial um, from white professors who um, are incredibly dismissive of the text or an anti racist pedagogical mission. Um, I'm learning how to not absorb those messages and that energy, and instead I'm trying to use them within my own teaching. So I have a whole workshop um, that begins with an analysis of these messages and we break it down rhetorically in order to study um, how we might you know exercise authority and center ourselves without even really being aware. You know, when we think we're having a harmless exchange or playing devil's advocate, so often that's an incredibly damaging exchange for our young people of color or our colleagues of color. Um, and so we we study these models. Um, and in that sense I feel empowered like I'm using it for my own education and for the education of, of others. Um, I think that's probably the most um, transformative um, growth that I've done as a teacher, um, both kind of personally and then using it in a, in a professional context.
2: This is kind of a, an adjunct to that last question, Tina asked, but as you think about sort of growing into, growing into this this vision of yourself, I'm curious about what you are imagining for the future of the Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, less the book than the, than the idea, the model. Um, what, are, what are your hopes for, for, for what will be next?
1: I have so many things. So <laughs> there's, um, you know, I, I love having these exchanges and I just got one last night where, you know, an elementary school school teacher was like, yeah, I totally see it. Like you're talking, to, you're talking to undergrad and grad professors, but I know how I'm gonna pull these tactics into my own classroom, and and we kind of end the conversation there, right? It's just like a thank you, and and yet I want to engage so much more deeply. Like I'm so curious. What are you doing? How will it change your curriculum in the elementary classroom? The same with middle school and high school teachers, and so that's something that I really want to explore, not in terms of platforming. My own experience, but theirs—like gathering their own techniques and tactics for the classroom, and um, perhaps creating an anthology that centers on their own experience. Um, so that's something I'm very interested in. Um, I'd love to evolve. You know, if you um, visit my website, and I encourage everyone to do so: www.antiracistworkshop.com. On the resources page, um, there's a what's called a, a living doc, which sounds so fancy. It's just a word doc or a, a Google Doc, um, in which uh, we aim to um, list out our contemporary writers of color. Um, they do exist <laughs> beyond James Baldwin. They're here, right? We we have um, s- such rich r- resources all around us. Um, and so uh, folks are engaging with that document. They're adding uh, whether it be their own uh, names to the document as authors or those who they really admire. Um, I'd love to see something evolve from that in terms of a digital platform like some sort of Goodreads software um, where a a teacher can go on and say, hey, I taught this person and I paired it with this canonical source, or I taught this person and here's the exercise that I used, right? So that we can just have um, an opportunity to exchange what we're doing in the classroom around these contemporary writers of color. And then the third thing I'd really like to do is to another digital platform um, in the um, tradition of like a write my professor um, in which um, Our students, as well as our staff and faculty can talk about their experience within a department or a program um, at, a, at a college or university so that those who are Looking to apply or considering accepting a position within a program can have access to current lived narratives of the students around them. Um, It's one thing to visit a campus, it's another to hear um, an honest reflection on a student or faculty or staff members experience within a program. And I think that would help us um, reduce kind of the harm um, and and the element of surprise that so often happens when um, when we um, become disillusioned with our academic institution. It also stands to help us stay accountable, right? Um, So that we can take those, Students, faculty, staff reflections into consideration, and say I can do better. So those are those are like kind of three goals that I have looking forward.
0: Oh, this has given me a good idea for our uh, website, Lucia. That um, we do a, a kind of social justice democratic pedagogy uh, Google Doc, and invite people to to add. I just did a consultation on social justice pedagogies with the university, and did this whole list, and invited them to to add. Um, but I, to expand it and really get some conversation going. Um, and as, as you're talking about these programs and, and holding each other mutually accountable and creating some sense of transparency about these programs, I'm thinking how many of us, I don't know anyone who is female or um, a minority faculty who hasn't had in whatever discipline some kind of really violent experience uh, in the academy, in their um, college, masters, doctoral programs, and all. And I think uh, this book is is a very brave um, expression of okay, let's let's name it and let's heal. Uh, but we can't heal unless we name it and work to change it. Um, okay, so we're getting near the end of our time. Lucia, do you have anything? Lucia, well, were you on? gonna respond to what Tina just said? I saw you kind of per- No, oh, yeah, yeah,
1: I was <laughs> I was gonna say that I just I, you know, I just it's something that I it was very difficult for me and I returned to the University of Iowa I did they invited me to do a reading of the book at Prairie Life Bookstore and then a panel um, these were two public facing events that um, we were intending to follow up with those sort of in-depth faculty workshops um, as of now those are you know we'll get to those in the fall We'll see, um, but these two these two experiences of, of these two public facing events, right? I had this um, tremendous response from students. I got fourteen emails from students um, within the writers' workshop, the nonfiction writing program, the playwrights' workshop, and the English department, um, all talking whether they were students of color or white students, talking about the, the racial climate. You know, racist climate within their program, um, and they were devastating. Um, they had nowhere else to put these stories, right? They had they 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 had no no other release um, other than a, a social media post here and there. And so, I I do believe that um, we owe it to our students to. Um, take into deep consideration their experience and their narratives about their educational experience. Um, and so, yeah, that's it's, it was just a really hard, um, sad uh, moment to, to feel how, how deeply despairing our, you know, our students, and, and aware and active, right, of, of, of what they're experiencing. Um, they want it so badly.
0: Yeah. Um, and it's that kind of collaborative work that you do with students in the classroom that is, is so inspiring and uh, that you co create. Um, Thank you. So, well, at the end here, we usually want to ask um, what we are listening to, watching, uh, experiencing, um, reading that in, in contemporary culture or academics or wherever that has. Um, Uh, been inspiring or moving or helping us think through things to a a different place. Um, And your book certainly helped me along my journey into um, understanding. And it is a long journey. I'll never get to the end, but um, it's a good journey toward uh, decolonizing my own classrooms. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, let's talk a little about what we're uh, getting into to help us in this pandemic space to survive and have hope.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I could,
3: I could point to the stack of books on my nightstand that I have, um, that I cannot engage with at night. Um, you know, the the Vanishing Half, The Prophets, um, uh, Infinite Country. Right. I've got this. I've got this stack of books that I'm like. Mm. As those are my daytime books. When it really comes to what I need and seek out at night, I find myself again <laughs> going back to this. It's an Instagram thread um, called "It's called Thread." Um, Videos of Black people laughing, and it's something that I consistently share with students when I do these um, as part of my uh, scholar in residence. With creativity and innovation, I'm um, able to to visit different classrooms, and I always share it with them because it's such a beautiful moment of just shared humanity and joy. Um, I think on that note, you know, right as I was creating this manuscript, I was also, you know, just (laughs) dating my my son around the same time that I had this book, my second son, and um, I can't tell you, I mean. I had such a hard, hard first pregnancy and, and postpartum period with my, with my first child. And I was so scared. It was like an eight year gap between the second child. And I was so afraid of releasing this book out into the world and experiencing like a deep depression again. And instead he's like magic, you know, it's, it's just, the constant source of inspiration that I need every day in that I can go do a facilitation at night and come back downstairs and just hold him <laughs> like it's everything I need you know um, and so that I I would I would cite that source uh, as as the
0: most moving at this moment Lucia what about you I,
2: I just, um, I just read through and then gifted to my mother on Victoria Chang's book of poems, *Obit*. Um, this is, so I'm from a family. We love, we love obituaries. It's like, it's a thing. Like we like scour obituaries in the paper and then read them aloud to each other over breakfast and like are very judgy about, um, other people's obituaries, but then like really, really appreciative. Like obituary writing is, is a true art. Um, and in the South, there are always like a million verbs for million, very elaborate verb forms for, saying dead, um, it is like dead or passages that, you know, on March 7th, the Lord scooped up Jerry on his magical chariot and flew off into the clouds. anyway. So I really appreciated Victoria Chang's um, obit, obit collection. So it's a, the poem, it's sort of ostensibly about the death of her mother, but the premise of this book is that when a close person dies, Everything dies. Um, so you know, she just like died on such and such day, the toaster. Um, and you know, she she write the poems are obituaries for like, different objects or different activities or different affects um, that are all kind of caught up in this um, whirlwind of her own loss and grief of with of her mother and contemporaneous to that her dad having a stroke um anyway it, it it's I'm also teaching a class as probably listeners to this podcast already know on loss, grief and activism so I've been just consuming a lot of different works that come into the question of loss in different ways and I just I really appreciated. it it's it's a devastating book so it's a funny it's you know it's it's layered so that's that's what I that's what I'm hanging out with right now. Tina, what are you doing?
0: Uh, Mine's not nearly as as, uh, literary. I've been watching movies and um, watched Minari, the uh, South Korean American um, filmmaker. Uh, Well, two films about the economic struggle in America, one from immigrants and one from um, uh, Nomadland with Frances McDormand. And they're both about um, you know social inequity, economic inequity, and it's helped me to because uh, I'm on the I'm on a page every day that's called a smart sheet, where uh, for our Ray of Light um, employee emergency fund that's part of our started with our living wage campaign on campus many many years ago. Lucia was part of this campaign when she was a student at Agnes Scott. And with all, let's see, almost 100 people being furloughed last August, uh, the need is overwhelming. Like we have, um, the fiscal year is January to December and we already have $25,000 we need to raise. And we've, uh, on the committee, been doing some video pleas about that. And, um, you know, emergency heart surgery and um, transportation and rent and utilities and just the basics, right? And and so dealing with that and the stories that I hear every every day, it's not a day that goes by that I don't hear a story uh, from someone, uh, you know, needing funds and, you know, the shame around needing funds and all of that. So the, these films help uh, to give it a larger context and they are fantastic films. They're very, Um, slow and um, just very humanizing Um, in the in the midst of of economic struggle there is real humanity Uh, so uh, that's what I've been doing is watching movies (laughs) Uh, along with all creatures great and small which I highly recommend as a as a nice uh, as nice scenery and and to be with animals so uh, Felicia Rose Chavez, thank you so much for your book and for your good work and for inspiring us. Uh, we are religion faculty and we teach writing too <laughs> along uh, in our fields. And it has given us so much to think about um, and, and the possibilities for our own transformation as teachers and, and the work that we still need to do. And um, so thank you so much for taking that risk and being so bold and brave uh, to share your own story um, and your own uh, fears and successes and joys. Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: It's been wonderful to talk with you today. Appreciate your time.
0: You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. We want to thank our guest, Felicia Rose Chavez, author of the Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom, published by Haymarket Books in 2021. Our theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. We want to give special thanks to our audio engineer, Aliyah Harris. Aliyah also did our outro music. It's called My Friend's Song, and it's with 5280 Miles Production. Thank you for listening.